Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so if 2020 has taught us nothing, it's that people can truly be horrible, right? And some folks, they'll drive to the middle of an urban wood and abandon their own pet there to perish. Yeah. But I have a friend, Petrina, who makes it her business to find these dogs. Sometimes it takes weeks, patience, special traps before she's able to finally put a collar on some emaciated, shriveling mongrel. And then, then she's got to find this dog a home. Now, we already have a dog. A mutt, the East Bay SPCA, found on the side of the road. Got him a few years back, and he's a good boy. The best, really. But this family of mine, they start talking about next year. A magical, glorious period when the land is virus-free, where we can leave the house to go to school and to work. And our dog, who has gotten used to people being around 24-7, won't he be lonely? I'm sure I'll get used to it. We should get him a playmate. What? Right on cue, my friend pulls yet another wasted hound from the deep woods. Skeletal. Skittish. Coat spotted with mange. Ah, I don't know. I'm not so for sure this is the best idea. But my family, you know, they're nicer than me. Plus, there's an inertia to these things. And in no time, flat. That's that. And this new dog, Bardot, she is super sweet, super gentle. You can see that she used to be beautiful. And already she's transforming hourly. I tell her, Bardot, come here. Of course, she doesn't know her new name is Bardot. But then, a couple minutes later, I'm clanging on the computer. She trots over puts her head in my lap and closes her eyes like she's finally found her way home. I am so glad you've made it home as well. The Snap Judgment Gratitude Special. My name is from Washington, especially during the crazy season. Remember, everyone needs a scratch behind the ears sometimes when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now, we're going to start off today's episode in one of the wildest places left in the lower 48, a place where the hunter and the hunted go round and round in an eternal struggle, and our hero, <laughs> our heroine, has four legs. Snap Judgment's Joe Rosenberg has only the two. Snap Judgment. 
Well, I, I very much subscribe to the idea, and maybe I'm, I'm spoiled or ruined, that country without wolves isn't really good country. It's incomplete. It doesn't have its full spirit. Doug Smith is a biologist with the National Park Service. And 20 years ago, he was asked to help reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone National Park. And so when I got to Yellowstone in 1994, I walked the landscape and it felt flat, dull. Without wolves, it just didn't crackle. And I know that sounds odd for a scientist to say that, but you get this feeling that you get no other place is when you're on a landscape that has wolves. So we took Yellowstone and we dropped maybe the biggest symbol of wilderness in the world in the middle of it. And that symbol did well. The wolves took to Yellowstone like they'd been born there. And Doug and his team were able to study them up close in a way wolves had never really been studied before. I mean, we knew them intimately. We knew their stories, we knew their pups, we knew their battles, we knew their, you know, loves, losses, everything. But more and more, I began just to hear about this one wolf, this female. I would go out in the field and people would come up to me and tell me their stories, and and they were tingling. I mean, they were excited. Uh, I, I, I couldn't shut them up. She was the Angelina Jolie of Wolves and Yellowstone. This is park biological technician Rick McIntyre. And the wolf he's describing was known as the 06 female. 06 because that's the year she was born. People often remarked on her beautiful gray coat, but also her unusual size for a female. And I I think in terms of the Yellowstone male wolves, from their perspective... She was drop-dead gorgeous. But in her case, it wasn't really until she left home when she was about two years old that we really began to figure out that there was something special about her. Rick says that when a wolf leaves home, normally the top priority is to find a mate and start raising pups. But she was in no rush at all. And one particular mating season, she had five different male suitors. As far as I know, that's a world record for a wild wolf and dumped every one of them. None of them met her standards. So it was like she was waiting for the time to be right for something to happen. One of the reasons the 06 female could afford to take her time, and also one of the other reasons she was the Angelina Jolie of wolves, was that she had, in addition to her good looks, another gift. We've pretty much worked out how wolves hunt, and we have found that the most efficient group size for hunting is four. And the division of labor is young males and females select and chase and grab, and big males come in and use their size and strength for the takedown. 06 did the whole thing by herself, repeatedly. And her technique um, was a dangerous one. Normally, wolves want the elk or the deer to run away from them. But what she preferred would be to have a standoff with an elk where it was face-to-face direct combat to the death. And a bull elk can be 700 pounds. And so if you're facing an elk, they can charge forward, rear up like a stallion, and trample you into the ground. 
or send you sailing into the air and gore you to death. So she would get in the most dangerous position and she would dodge the attack very agilely. And then when the moment was right, she'd make her move. She'd run directly at the elk, jump as high as she could in the air, turn her jaws to the side, and grab the throat. So that was her gift when it came to hunting. It's just a a masterfully um, impressive endeavor. So I, I just never got tired of watching her in action. Another thing that made 06 a joy to watch in the wild was that, unlike a lot of other wolves in Yellowstone, she didn't sport one of those ungainly radio collars. Even though radio collars helped Doug and his team track the wolves, study them, and ultimately protect them. And if you can only have one wolf collared, you want her. We catch the wolves by shooting them with a tranquilizing dart. I've personally darted probably over 300 wolves. But 06 was a mix of speed and intelligence that I've rarely seen. I would see her in the field. I would see her from the airplane. And most vividly, I would see her from the helicopter. And she would look at me with disdain. And most other wolves just ran. They got out of there. But what she would do is she would look at me and our eyes would connect. And the look she would give would be, I don't like you at all and I'm going to outsmart you. And I'd tell the pilot, get that one. Get that gal. And then he'd start nosing in on her and maybe even juice the throttle a little bit to pick up a little speed. And, and somehow, and I can't explain it, you know, she'd use stuff to her advantage. A few times she used the trees, and a few times she actually used some rocks, but we could never catch her in a bad spot. And it began about a three-year period where I couldn't get her. It was around this same time that 06 finally decided to form a pack, mating with two young brothers. And they, they didn't know anything. And we certainly were wondering why, after all the other big, tough, impressive male wolves that had courted her, did she want to end up with these inexperienced brothers? It, to us, it really didn't make sense because she had to do the lion's share of work to make sure that her pups were going to survive. So when they were a few weeks old, she had recovered enough from having given birth that she was able to go out and hunt. And after maybe 10 minutes leaving the den site, she had already killed two elk. The two brothers would almost stand aside and look on like, why should we do it? Because she's going to do it. In fact, there's some evidence that she taught those two males how to hunt, period. And because of her provisioning, she raised 13 pups to a full year of age. That's way above the average. And in 2012, there was a pretty major incident that happened that really showed what 06 was capable of in terms of being the ultimate survivor. She was down in the den nursing her newborn pups, not really recovered from having given birth. And there was a problem that was approaching, and that was their rival pack, their deadliest enemy, the Molly's Wolves. Sixteen adult wolves were heading straight for her den site, and her side was totally outnumbered. And a few minutes after the Molly's Wolves went into the thick forest, we saw a whole bunch of wolves running out of the trees. And out in front, 
was the 06 female running desperately for her life. All 16 of the rival wolves were chasing her, and she was not able to run fast because of having just had her pup. So she was in a desperate situation. What had made it worse was that she was running toward the top of a cliff. It was almost like an Indiana Jones movie, and she would have to stop at the top of the cliff, turn around, and even for the 06 female, as great a fighter as she was, there was nothing that she could do if she was attacked simultaneously by 16 rival wolves. So as I was watching this, I was resigned to the fact that I was going to see her torn apart. But I underestimated her because what I didn't know and the other wolves didn't know was that there was a little bit of a gully that she could run down. The Molly's wolves were confused. They didn't know what happened. They were looking around for her. But there was still a major problem. They were between her and her den site. And all they had to do was follow her scent trail backwards and kill all of her pups. Well, all those years of training that she had put into her family paid off at that moment. One of her adult daughters came into totally plain sight, put herself in extreme danger because there was no way that the Molly's wolves could not see her. She ran to the east, which meant that she was leading them away from the pups. And that particular daughter was the fastest wolf in 06 family. She just left him in the dust. And after just a couple of minutes of the chase, the Molly's wolves just gave up in frustration and they went home and they never bothered the 06 family again. After that, 06's pack thrived. She had overcome every obstacle thrown her way, and she was now the undisputed queen of Yellowstone. And so despite what I said before, I kind of quit wanting to get her. We all like an underdog. And when you get to know an individual of another species, like we all did her, you just begin to kind of respect that individual. In this case, that wolf. Because she was worthy of just being left alone. And so catching her ended up being a mistake. And it was a mistake that she made that I can't believe she did. We were out February 2012 darting wolves like we've done a hundred times. And I just wanted to catch two wolves. And any two won't be her. Guaranteed. And the pilot, he goes, how about that one? And he spots this wolf right there out of the side of the helicopter. I forget how far it was, but it was in one of those big openings that, you know, me, the guy trying to catch him, really relishes. And I had a split-second thought where I thought, yeah, I don't want to get the 06 female, but there's no way she'd do that. She's on her way to the trees, or she's taking a gully out. And I knew her daughter was, in a lot of ways, a look-alike daughter to her mama. And so I thought, well, this is probably her. So I said to the pilot, great, go after that wolf. We moved her down to the river, which was completely frozen over with ice. And I waited for that moment. And she came out on the ice, and I landed a dart right in her back. All great. And we landed, 
rotor blades going. I got out. I walk up to the wolf, and I see a smudge of blood under her tail. That's the vulva area of a wolf. That's an indication that this wolf is a breeder. In other words, it was an indication that this was the pack's alpha female. 06. So bang, when I saw that blood, I went, oh no. And I've handled over 500 wolves. And all of them, to me, are beautiful. I mean, that's just a bias I have. But she was a beautiful gray. And there's nothing like a, uh, a beautiful female gray wolf. And I, I didn't want to collar her. I dreaded it. But there was just so much at stake. Because from the perspective of science, from the perspective of knowledge, of, of learning about these animals that we so much want to help, this is the number one wolf you want to get. And here we got her. And so that's how she came to be collared. The collar allowed them to track O6's movements. But when they did, they saw her do something that, to their knowledge, she had never done before. At a certain point, the family crossed the park border. And they didn't know it, but uh, they were in a section of Wyoming where wolf hunting was very legal. And in mid-November, the pack was seen by a hunter. I don't know who it was. And the biggest wolf in the pack was shot and killed. The wolf that had been shot was the seventh wolf killed that season in an area of Wyoming that permitted eight wolves to be killed. The quota had been agreed to by the National Park Service as a way to keep wolf numbers down outside of Yellowstone. It had been one of the compromises with the surrounding communities that allowed wolves to remain in the park at all. 06, of course, had no way of knowing any of this. In her mind, everywhere was like Yellowstone. So one wolf left on the quota, and I think everybody was worried that another wolf from that pack would get shot. But through all of that, I thought she wouldn't get shot just because it was her. Heck, I tried to shoot her with a helicopter flying above her, and I couldn't get that done for three straight years. And so I didn't think she'd get shot with a rifle by someone on the ground. To Doug and Rick's relief, after her mate was killed, 06 and the rest of her family hightailed it back to the park. So we thought when they came back to the park, that would be it. They've kind of, quote, learned their lesson. But they went right back out. And then I remember one evening getting a call from a co-worker where he had gotten word for Wyoming that the eighth wolf was dead. And I think the wording was that it was a gray female, which would have been a description of 06. So I went to bed that night realizing that it may well be her. And then as I was driving in before sunrise the next morning, I got a text and it was confirmation that, yes, it was 06. And unfortunately, at that point, my job was to tell everyone that had known her so well that she had died. And that was, that was pretty hard. I didn't think they'd get her. And they did. And why they did, I don't know. I thought she was immune. But it's naive to think that we have a wolf running around in Yellowstone that's untouched by humans. And there is a part of me that wishes that was true. 
that wolves like 06 could be forever wild. So it's painful to confront it and say, we just don't live in that kind of world anymore. In other words, collar or no collar, hunting quota or no hunting quota, wolves only live in Yellowstone so long as we want them there. And that was very much on Rick's mind the next spring when he was asked to give a talk to some school kids in a neighboring town. And so the teacher and the kids joined me. There were only a few of them. It was a very small school. But before I could say anything, one of the kindergarten boys started to talk. And this is what he said. I know the man that shot that famous wolf. And of course, he was talking about the 06 female. Everyone was talking about her. And I understand how young boys are. I wanted to move on. I wanted to get into my talk. But before I could do that, the same boy opened his mouth and said, my dad just bought a license to kill a wolf. And once again, man, what can you say to that? Wolf hunting is legal. And I just didn't know how to handle the situation. And I was kind of getting mad at myself for being at the mercy of this five-year-old boy. But he had one more thing to say. And I was thinking to myself, oh, man, I might as well just just go home. I can't deal with this. It's too hard. So after saying, I know the man that shot that famous wolf. My daddy just bought a license to, to kill a wolf. This was his next statement. But I hope he doesn't. He hopes that his dad doesn't kill that wolf that he has the license for. So I like to think of that as being one of the most important parts of the legacy of the 06 female. Now, just in case you were wondering, Doug Smith and Rick McIntyre both say that 06's pack is continuing to do well in the Lamar Valley region of Yellowstone National Park. Big thanks to both Doug and Rick. That story was produced by Joe Rosenberg. The sound design by Renzo Gorio. Don't go away, Snappers. After the break, we're going to meet a woman who has a special relationship with birds. A house full of them. Stay tuned. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the 2020 Gratitude Special. My name is from Washington. Now, our next storyteller she had a relationship with the animals, a relationship with birds. And that relationship went even deeper than she thought. 
Every year for my birthday, as long as I could remember, my grandfather bought me a white dove. It was actually a white homing pigeon, but I didn't know that as a child. I would sit with this dove all day, and I would marvel at it, and I would touch it. And then at dusk, my grandfather and I would go out to the yard, and we would release it together. It was a really magical moment for me as a child to kind of have that power of being able to release an animal. My grandfather had a coop in the backyard, and we both tended to it every morning. So I, we were always together. I was able to feel like I was part of his world, and his world was birds. He would always tell me about the bird market of Paris, where it has been for about 108 years. Apparently, the birds there are absolutely miraculous. They're of these incredible colors, and they sing these beautiful songs. I always thought, as a child, that I would get there someday. When I was 18 years old, a boyfriend bought me a lovebird for Valentine's Day. It was like this weird-looking, kind of ugly little squiggle of a thing, and it was sleeping. And I named it Bonk. Baby birds are a lot of work. I had to syringe feed Bonk every four hours. I had to care for and keep it warm. They're ferocious and loving and smart and sweet. They bond for life. So they can either bond to another bird for life or they'll bond to you for life. I literally started spending every waking second with this bird. I had it tucked into my t-shirt. We went on dates. We went to college classes. Bonk would sit under my hair when I would go shopping. I literally had this bird with me all the time. And then I started breeding these lovebirds. I ended up with hundreds and hundreds of these lovebirds. My grandfather kept lovebirds from when I was a young child. So when I started raising birds and I had so many babies that I couldn't handle it anymore, I would give the babies to him. And then we both became really bonded in in these lovebirds and we would trade babies back and forth. And sometimes he would surprise me and he would just show up with another beautiful lovebird. Imagine a house. There were bird cages and birds literally all over the house. I was a bird lady in the daytime, but I also went to college. I went out to nightclubs. I was a little beach bunny in Miami, running around in my bikini on the beach. I had plenty of boyfriends. I did not look the part of the weird bird lady. When I went to the bird clubs, it was all like grandmothers and moms and then me. I don't think of the birds as being other than me or being different from me. They're just other beings on the earth trying to survive, and I have stewardship over them. And I do the best I can for them to make their lives great. We lived in South Miami, and we heard that there was a hurricane coming. Channel 4 News Team. 
Good evening. This is a special expanded edition of the Channel 4 News Nightcast. A hurricane watch is now in effect for South Florida. A hurricane with major uh, life-threatening storm surge and damaging winds. With I watched all the neighbors start preparing their homes by boarding up and buying supplies, and we weren't doing anything. As the hours went on, we started seeing where the hurricane was going to come, and it was headed right for us. It looks like our luck has run out. Hurricane Andrew appears headed towards South Florida, and tonight we are under a hurricane watch. The police came blaring with their horns, and they came door to door, and they said, you've got to get out of here. This is You, you can be arrested if you're in a mandatory evacuation zone and you don't leave. I said, well, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving my animals. And they said, no, you're leaving. You have to go. So I packed up 10 of my youngest birds and left the rest of the birds, locked the door, and hoped for the best. And I don't know why I left Bonk behind. I believed that nothing would happen. I got to my friend's house, and then sometime in the middle of the night, windows started just blasting out of the house. You hear the noise described as a freight train, and it, it does sound like that. The house was shaking. It sounded like bomb blasts outside. You could see the door in the attic jumping. The walls were shaking, and the ceiling was moving, and everything was swaying, and we were just huddled together in this closet. I was sure we weren't going to make it through this. Nobody spoke, and we were just looking into each other's eyes. All I could think about in that closet was my birds. Dawn broke, and I'd never seen anything like that. I didn't even know a scene like that was possible. It was something out of the end of the world. We walked out of the space where the door once was, and you couldn't see grass or asphalt or anything. The entire ground was covered with roof tiles. I absolutely needed to get home. I was anxious to the point of, of like almost having a breakdown because I had to get back to my birds. A guy next door noticed that I was very upset, and he came over and said, I'll drive you to your house. He pulled out of his garage this Porsche 911 Targa, black on black. The shiny, beautiful Porsche against the backdrop of this ruin. Every street sign is down. All the landmarks you used to get home or to turn on a certain street are gone. We had to park about 10 blocks from my home because there were yachts in the street. And he climbed over these yachts and these mountains of seaweed with me, and we were just all bitten up by ants. I got closer to the house. There was no more door on the house. There were no more doors or windows, so it was easy to get in. There was a water line on the house at seven feet. There were mountains of seaweed in the house. There were fish in the house and crabs and other people's furniture. I walked into the bird room, and there were just cages and shambles dead, drowned birds. There were cages that were just mangled, and they were all kind of crumpled on top of each other. And I, I tore through the cages, just pulling body after body of all of these dead lovebirds out of the cage. 
I was piling them up in the front of my shirt and weeping, and baby after baby of Bonk's babies were dead. Everybody, they all had names, and dozens were killed by the flood. And in that bird room of the dozens of birds that were killed, there were six alive, and one of them was Bonk. She was screeching. Lovebirds don't screech. And she was clinging to the side of her cage and screeching, and I took her out and I just snuggled her and cuddled her and kissed her. I just sat there amongst the dead birds and wept. I'm having an absolute breakdown because I've killed my birds. I walked out of that hurricane house a completely changed person. All I could think about was those beautiful dead wet birds still in their cages and what they must have experienced as that water just lapped in and drowned them. Those images ran over and over in my head 24 hours a day. Like I couldn't get rid of them. And I, I felt so guilty. These were things I was supposed to protect. I had this grief that pressed on me every minute of every day. The devastation, uh, God, it's so hard to explain. I started taking in every bird that came to me through rescue, and there were dozens and dozens of birds. People were, were literally knocking on my door and leaving birds on the doorstep. Birds they didn't want, injured birds, birds they'd found. The bird hobby became a bird fury. The house really became just a, a lesson in pandemonium. Ton, dozens of species. I, yeah, I ended up with a lot of birds. <laughs> As my bird collecting escalated, my grandfather was declining, and he ended up passing away. That was beyond devastating for me because he was the closest person in my life. He was like my dearest confidant and friend and I thought, you know, my, my grandfather and I were like a bonded pair of birds. I started noticing that alcohol could really kill a lot of the emotional pain. So I drank a lot. I started drinking every day. So I really didn't have any friends because, frankly, no one wants to be around somebody like that. I had this idea of doing this grand gesture that would make it all go away. Like if I do this one thing, like I'll be relieved of all of this emotion. So I thought, if I go to the Bird Market of Paris, which is a place that my grandfather told me about many, many times and said it was the best place in the world, and I buy a dove and I release it into the Paris sky, then I will be releasing all of this grief. It's a little irrational, but I go all in with the magical thinking. <laughs> I think that's what magical thinking is about. You can't have doubts. You just have to be really, really confident about the magic. So I got the money and I exchanged my apartment for an apartment in Paris and I, I got there. Sunday came when I was finally going to go to the bird market. I walked there very slowly. I was had so much apprehension about it. And I turned the corner onto the bird market, and I just heard this beautiful bird song. And I saw all of these beautiful birds. My grandfather was not exaggerating. It was beautiful. 
I walked slowly looking around because I knew this is a big deal. I have to buy the right kind of bird and I have to find the right place to let it go because my entire redemption of all of these things that happen hang on this. So I studied this one guy, he was selling some pigeons and I walked up to him and I said, can I, I'd like to buy this pigeon. And he's kind of looked me up and down. He said, what are you going to do with it? And I was kind of taken aback and I said, well, I'm going to um, release it into the sky, you know. And he was like, oh, what are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> are you going to release this bird and she will go and make love with other birds and then come back to my birds and give them disease? And I was like, what? <laughs> I couldn't believe. No, that's not what I want. And I'll just, I'll just take one. And he's like, no, 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 no. Fine, I'll just go to this next guy. Meanwhile, that first guy was talking to the other guy in French and saying, no, 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 don't don't sell to this American. So now this guy's like, no. And I went to the next guy and it happened like that all, it was like five people would not sell me anything and they were laughing at me. One guy tried to sell me like a big skunk. They were mocking me and I got so upset that I literally ran away from the bird market. Completely dejected. I'd given up on it. It was devastating. I just decided I'm just going to walk around aimlessly. And a week later, I went to go see the windmill at the Moulin Rouge. I had wanted to see it. And I see in the netting of the Moulin Rouge, right, right below the windmill of the Moulin Rouge, that famous windmill, there's this green netting, and it's to keep pigeons out of there. Trapped in the green netting is this big male pigeon. It was hanging downwards with its wings extended almost like the way I can describe it is like an upside-down Jesus, like a cross shape. I thought, oh my God, this is it. I knew what it was at that moment. And then I saw um, a white door and a buzzer that was the backstage to the Moulin Rouge, so I started pressing the buzzer. A guy came out, it was a very cute Frenchman, and he looked at the bird and he looked at me and he said, ah, I will make the rescue. He came back with a tall ladder, the tallest ladder I've ever seen, and I was afraid that he was going to cut the bird down and just let it go. So I started to climb up the ladder after him, and he <laughs> turned back to me and he was like, no, 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 stop. He cut the bird down, he was holding the bird in his gloved hand, and he came and he handed me the bird. I was taking the Holy Grail out of somebody's hand. This is what I had come to Paris for. This is why I was here. I felt at that moment something release in me to let go of some of that grief. I know that was Poppy communicating with me. I mean, I don't know that, but I, feel, I felt that. But I had almost constant pain and grief over the hurricane birds. Still. It took many, many years for me to not actually feel like that all the time. In a weird way, I think that Poppy and I still communicate through birds. 
I have saved many pigeons in New York City since then. Wait, dear listener, wait. Nikki's story goes on from this point. She wrote a book about it, The Bird Market of Paris. Discovered on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story is produced by Anna Sussman with sound design by Renzo Gorio. Oh, yes, it has happened again, and you have to know gratitude we have for our amazing listeners snap nation thank you for your support for this show over the years as rough as 2020 has been i know that the snappers are the lifeline on these stormy seas and if you missed even a moment of today's show subscribe to the amazing snap judgment podcast subscribe because someone's story might change your life i know it changed mine and if you want to let the world know you snap what better way to do it than with one of these cool t-shirts or even a snap pin? They're all available right now at snapjudgment.org slash shop. Get them what they really want this holiday season. Snapjudgment.org slash shop. Snap is brought to you by the team that always carries pet treats in their pockets. Except for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. You don't want what's in his pocket. Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio. There's Pat Mercedes Miller, John Facile, Shana Sheely. Marissa Dodge, Nika Singh, Teo DeCott, Flo Wiley, Nancy Lopez, and Regina Beriaco. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, every one day you came home early, dead tired, put the dog in the baby crib, and put the baby on the dog blanket. And your partner is only hearing this story right now for the first time on a national radio program, and you would still, 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 not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PRP.